I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the CapEx Podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Is economics fit for the modern world? That's the basic question posed in Cogs and Monsters, the new book from Diane Coyle, one of Britain's most eminent economists, and our guest this week. Part critique of her own profession, part manifesto for a better, more up-to-date economics, Diane's book goes beyond the standard criticisms of her field and gets into the really big issues. Not least, what should the role of an economist actually be? Should economics describe the world as it is or as it should be? And how can economists deal with a world of AI, big tech and big data? Diane is as well qualified as anyone to answer those questions, having worked variously as a treasury economist, economics editor of The Independent, professor of economics at the University of Manchester, and since 2018 as the head of the interdisciplinary Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. She's also the author of no fewer than nine books, including The Weightless World, The Economics of Enough, and GDP, A Brief but Affectionate History. So, uh, Diane, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, One of the things you say in your book, Cogs and Monsters, is that economics seems to care more about logical rigour than reality. Uh, Do you think that your profession needs to sort of get out into the world a little bit more? Uh, Well, thank you very much for the invitation to take part. And the short answer to your question is, is yes, I do. And um, there obviously are economists who get out into the world a lot in uh, business. For example, the tech companies are now hiring lots of economists. And um, there, there are many people working in practical areas like the Competition and Markets Authority or the Bank of England and their regional offices. So they obviously do all get out into the world. So I suppose I'm talking about the academic economists who are really influential through what they teach and what they publish and shaping how we think as a profession. And um, I don't think they do get out into the world enough and often um, emphasize the sort of internal logic of models over the reality of the assumptions that make those models work. And, um, you know, so for example, when I talk to people in macroeconomics, the area where it's doing, it's doing looking at the whole economy and forecasting interest rates and inflation and unemployment and so on, there's a great emphasis on what 
are called micro foundations of the models, which means that that internal consistency, can you um, link the outcomes of the model to assumptions, logically consistent assumptions about um, maximizing profits and people maximizing their utility and adding all of that up. And yet some of those assumptions are just really ad hoc with regard to how people actually behave in the world. And um, I'd like to see more emphasis on what some economists would regard as illogical assumptions, but, but they're more realistic. And sure. I suppose I, I come at that because I spent a lot of time myself in the world of policy, particularly competition policy, where you go around and you meet people and you talk to people in business and realize that the concepts that we use as economists don't really have any corresponding um, meaning to people who are doing, doing the economy as it were. I mean, what do you put that down to? One of the, one of the lines in the book that um, made me sort of chuckle a bit was when you, you quote Paul Romer, I think saying, it's what he calls mathsiness, a sort of uh, a tendency to use too much of that micro underpinning um, to prove things that you can just say in, in plain English. Do you put that down to uh, economists perhaps wanting to show what they can do to show how sophisticated they are at times? There is a great emphasis, particularly in the academic world, on having um, very impressive techniques, including mathematical techniques. And I think it, I agree with Paul Romer, it's gone too far. Uh, you know, I'm trying to walk a line here because I think the maths is quite important, um, mainly as a way of ensuring logical consistency in the way that you're thinking. So I certainly wouldn't throw away the maths, mm -hmm. but I'm one of those economists who always want to be able to translate the maths back into the um, underlying word, word concepts um, that are much more natural for most people to understand. And the training of PhD students and academic economists is such that over time it has become increasingly technical and there is now a lot of quite fancy maths involved in the programmes. And I would sacrifice some of that and reintroduce some economic history or you know, even some sociology or political science into economics programmes. And you also, it's quite striking, you, you paint a slightly unflattering, well, quite an unflattering um, view of the, the world of academic econo economics as being sort of slightly aggressive and dismissive and, and macho. Do you think that has, that's improved in the time that you've been working um, as an academic economist? It has improved. And there is more awareness now among the men who are the majority of the um, academic economics profession that that culture is problematic and part of the reason for the shocking, shocking lack of diversity in economics. We're a subject like computer science or maths or um, parts of engineering, which are incredibly male dominated and actually more than that, white male dominated and middle-class white male dominated and yet we claim to be a social science. And this is a huge problem because you can't even know what questions you ought to be asking as a social science researcher or um, what goes into constructing the databases that we download so cheerfully and use all the time if, if the profession's so unrepresentative. And, um, you know, I, I think this is a real problem, but on the other hand, all of the professional societies now have recognised that it's a problem and um, have a lot of initiatives in place to try and do something about it. My concern about 
these approaches is that they don't um, really recognize that it's actually the, the content and style of the economics itself that is part of the problem. It's not just about behavior and departments, it's about the substance of the subject and its narrowness and including its overemphasis on certain techniques at the ex expense of others. Well, that actually brings me very neatly onto my next question, which is one of the things you say is that you would like to um, change the benchmark way of thinking of economic students. I'm just interested in, in that phrase. What do you see as the current benchmark way of thinking and in what ways would you like to see it uh, evolve and develop? Once you start learning economics, you start with the idea of um, individuals and businesses who are maximizing respectively their utility, this idea of this very um, specific and narrow idea of well-being, and firms maximizing their profits. And then you aggregate up, and uh, there are theorems showing that under certain assumptions, markets will deliver the best outcomes for society. And we make assumptions about how you decide what's best. And the convention is called Pareto optimality or Pareto efficiency which is that you, if you can make somebody better off but nobody else worse off, that's an improvement for society. But everything else you rule out commenting on. So in theory, we rule out commenting on income distribution. So we've got this concept of efficiency, which is actually very value-laden. It's not like engineering efficiency at all. And um, it, it leads you to a presumption that markets will give the most efficient solution and you can look for market failures and identify specific government interventions to address those market failures. But among the assumptions that involves are, for example, that there are no increasing returns to scale in business, whereas in fact, they're completely pervasive. And in fact, they've got more pervasive, bigger than ever with the digital economy. You assume that preferences are fixed. And yet Madison Avenue has known since the 1950s that people's preferences are totally malleable. You assume that there are no externalities or uh, spillovers from one people or one business to another. And again, they're absolutely everywhere you look in the economy. And so somehow we've created this benchmark where we start with um, something that's really simple and, and add in complexities and try to address them. Actually, we need to flip that round and start with a recognition of a very complex, dynamic, um, economy where people affect each other all the time and there are increasing returns to scale and past dependencies and a lot of complexity and um, devise the techniques that are good for addressing that and, and work from there, work in that direction instead. I wonder, um, you mentioned talking, um, learning more about history. Um, what value do you think there is to economists in sort of zooming out a bit and saying well look at this society and look at that society and the kind of systems they had in place and one is far more prosperous than the other let's say North Korea versus South Korea um, do you think there's there's a, a field of a, a role for the economists there in, in looking at those very long kind of decades long um, systems and, and how they affect human welfare? Uh, so there certainly is and um, from 2012 onwards I got involved in thinking about curriculum reform and was one of the many co-authors of the core economy text. <clears throat> and one of the motivations for that uh, was talking to lots of employers who said, we've had this financial crisis and the graduates we're hiring now are incredibly technically able, but they didn't know that there was a, a, a great depression and a financial crisis in the 1920s and 30s. And how can 
we have turned out people who are so ignoramus of the only previous event that might give us some clues about how to handle this. When I was a graduate student, which is now many years ago in the early 1980s, economic history courses were still a requirement for getting a PhD in economics. And that's gone largely, it's been pushed out by um, bit learning more technical stuff. And I would um, tilt the balance back in the other way. I mean, it, it is what we're struggling with, as all social scientists are, is trying to make sense of an incredibly complex um, society, global society, interconnected, um, things are happening that have never happened before and countries are very different. And how do you start to make sense of this? So you need a lot of different kinds of tools. So it isn't all about data and, and technical econometrics and it isn't all about history. I think you need to bring both of these to bear on trying to make sense of what's happening in the world and how to make things better and therefore understanding what we mean by better, for whom and how do we define and even begin to measure this. Yeah, I was interested. You talk about bringing in other disciplines, and history is the one we've we've mentioned. What, which other areas of the humanities do you think have a role to play in, in sort of creating the better economics that you talk about in the book? I work a lot myself with um, computer scientists and engineers uh, because I'm looking at the digital economy, um, but also with political scientists because if you want to think about economic policy advice. If you don't take account of political feasibility, you're not going to give good advice. That has to be part of the analysis. Um, with historians, because if you're thinking about technological change, thinking about previous waves of technology is a way of getting some insight into that. And it will vary a bit depending on what kind of work you're doing. So if you're looking at household economic decisions, you ought to be working with um, sociologists or ethnographers, for example, and understanding what's shaping household structures from different perspectives, or even who within the household is answering the questions in the panel data that we're downloading and using to do econometrics on. Um, but I do strongly think that across universities, um, disciplines need to get out of their silos and work much more together because there are some very complex challenges facing us and no single discipline has the answer. So there's, a, there's a, just an institutional problem about restoring this kind of civic purpose of universities to help people research and understand big societal questions. And what do you see as the, if you like, the mechanism for um, bringing about some of the change that you talk about? And uh, you mentioned in the book that there was a conference in 2012 organised by the Government Economic Service and the Bank of England, and that struck me as, as one of the kind of forums you can use. But if you're bringing in other subjects as well, does that need to be something top down? Does the government need to help out with this? Does Universities UK? I mean, how do you see that um, panning out? Well, I was one of the organisers of that 2012 conference. And so I think part of the answer to coordination problems is that somebody's just got to get up and start coordinating. And so um, that was Andy Haldane at the Bank of England and Andy Ross in the Government Economic Service. And I um, pushed that conference and that had some momentum. The core textbook and uh, uh, online resources um, were delivered by the dynamism of Wendy Carlin at UCL and Sam Bowles at UMass Sandhurst. So individuals can make a difference. But then you've got to start um, building coalitions for change in different kinds of contexts. Funders can make a difference by emphasizing the need for interdisciplinary research and increasingly they're doing that. Um, there, are, there are barriers, um, including how do you get peer reviewers to 
um, make a fair assessment of things that aren't in their own discipline. One of the barriers I'm thinking about now is the structure of um, appointments and promotions within universities where uh, you've got to publish in certain journals to get appointed in a certain department and that's quite a difficult structure to change. But there are more and more interdisciplinary institutes like my own, the Bennett Institute here at Cambridge and um, others around, around the world. And so that's starting to shift a bit. And again, um, things like the emphasis on impact by UKRI in the UK helps to shift that because actually you're not going to achieve impact unless you've got a, a broader coalition. And then the other thing that gives me real hope is that young people are really interested in broader approaches, working across disciplines. And there are some journals, including the general science journals like Science and Nature that are starting to publish um, much more work across disciplines and that will really help as well. But there's no quick fix to this. It's just a long haul of a lot of people trying to make a difference. So anybody listening who has been toying with the idea, um, I would say get up and go out and make a difference. And do you think that the shattering experience of the last 18 months or two years is going to intensify the kind of calls you're making for this kind of change? Uh, have you already seen it accelerating some of the effort? I vary between being optimistic and pessimistic about this. I mean, we've see, seen um, uh, a, the pandemic has prompted epidemiologists and economists and behavioral scientists to work together. Um, the realization about the urgency of what's happening to the climate has again prompted a lot of people to come together and start working on that. And there is great energy among young people to address big problems. Um, so I think the opportunity is there, um, but on the other hand, it's really difficult to get this coordination and system change in the way we approach problems. And it may be that even with the kind of urgency of current, the current situation, we will fail at that. And I, I don't know, I mean, maybe you've got a view on this, but I don't know which way I think it will go at the moment. Um, yeah, I think like the French Revolution, it may still be too early to tell. Um, <laughs> One of the things that you mention, um, another thing you mentioned in the book is that um, economists are not always great at explaining their ideas. Um, it just struck me, I think that perhaps we journalists also, you know, get off a bit lightly because we take things economists say as if they're, they're gospel. Do you think there's a, a sort of expectation management about what economists can, can and can't do seems to me to be an important aspect of this. I wonder what you think about that. It's a good question. And in a way, we're actually really well served in economics because there is a, a core of economic journalists who, who know their stuff and talk to people a lot, which isn't the case for lots of other parts of academic work. Um, and so there is probably, and I think this is not just about academic research, but also about economic statistics. There is too little um, reflection of the inherent uncertainties when it gets reported. And, you know, I think like other parts of science, there's just a tendency to emphasize part of the story and not reflect all of the uncertainties around it. And so that's a broader problem. Um, you know, but equally, I would love to see journalists when they're reporting the GDP figures to um, you know, acknowledge that a 0.2% increase in a quarter could end up being 
minus 0.2% or plus 0.5%. And I know that there's just huge uncertainty around what's going on. So I'd like to see more reflection of that through the reporting, but I'd also, you know, really like to see economists being a bit more humble. And I know we've been calling for this since the financial crisis, but there's still a lot of economists whose job it is or, or whose inclination is to make strong claims and just not acknowledge that there is actually very little way of, of proving things one way or the other, particularly on big subjects, um, you know, that's something that actually that really struck me about the budget last week is that the, the growth project projection went up from 4% earlier this year to 6.5%, to which is a huge change. And that aspect of it didn't really get reported very much. I just wonder, are you concerned that, without getting too political about it, are you concerned that, that politicians are tending to make kind of spending plan and tax plans based on numbers that, are pretty shaky well they have to make plans and they've got to use some numbers so i'm completely sympathetic to that the thing that's always struck me is the um uncertainty the fan charts in the bank of england inflation report and for inflation the uncertainty starts now and it goes forward for gdp the uncertainty goes into the past because of revisions and if you look at where the current band is now there's a huge range there we just don't know what the current rate of growth of the economy is, never mind in one year or five year or 10 years time. So obviously governments need numbers to do monetary and fiscal policy and, and um, they're always going to need GDP figures to do that. But it's incredibly, it's not only uncertain, the outcomes are affected by what they do now. So if we're thinking about the sustainability of government debt into the future, that does depend partly on a forecast GDP growth and interest rates, but what GDP and interest rates turn out to be equally depend on what the government does now. So you could think of this in two ways. One is you've got to reduce the deficit and the debt that way, or you could think about you've got to increase growth and increase the denominator of the debt ratio that way. They map onto, broadly speaking, two different political perspectives or sets of um, societal preferences about what kind of what kind of economy and society we have and um yet that that's the kind of subtlety i suppose that doesn't very much get reflected in in day-to-day -day reporting and you've done a lot of work in your career about gdp itself I and mean, you wrote a whole book about it um do you think and, and combining with your work on 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 the digital economy which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute i mean how do, do you think we fet over fetishize GDP as a as a metric when it perhaps isn't telling us as much as the public might think it does? Yes, I do. And um, it's partly taking the absolute numbers too seriously, but it's also that GDP has over time um, become a, a less useful measure of things that we actually care about. It's, it's really highly correlated with things that matter, people having jobs, what incomes they take home. And so I think it does matter as a metric, but we've always known it leaves things out. Um, the use of environmental resources, the role of unpaid work in the household and so on. And um, some of those have become more acute questions, particularly the environmental ones. So something like Path Gupta's report for the treasury on biodiversity really underlines the price we've paid for not 
thinking about nature as an integral part of the economy. Um, uh, but the other thing that's changed is, is digital technology and the way it is leading to some divergence between um, kind of outcomes that people might care about and um, what gets measured in GDP. So I've been looking at things like um, are the price indices for telecommunication services that we have been using the right ones, given that there are now lots of free services that we get through smartphones and, and data plans, and how should you construct the price index to take account of that? Or um, even statistical artifacts like companies using cloud computing, they used to invest in their own servers, and that was counted as investment in, into GDP. If you buy time on cloud servers instead, that counts as an in intermediate spending by a company and it's deducted um, just because of the accounting treatment. So there are all kinds of things going on due to digital, due to big structural shifts in the economy, um, as well as all of the long-standing issues about GDP that's, that seem to matter much more. So it, I, you know, I think it's still an important indicator, but it's a, a less um, comprehensive guide to how society is going than it used to be. Um, I wonder, some people have, have posited that this is quite a big part of the so-called productivity puzzle, is that we're just not actually counting a lot of the things that you mentioned, things like apps and cloud computing, are not really feeding into um, the numbers properly. I mean, what's your sort of intuition on that? I think that's correct. Um, I just don't know how much the productivity puzzle it accounts for, because that will be the result of lots of different things. For example, all the Western economies have got aging population and it's not well understood how that plays into productivity. Um, the UK has got long-standing problems with uh, a lot of chopping and changing in, in important policies like industrial policy or education policy. We've got skills mis mismatches. So that's part of the explanation for our low level of productivity. But I do think that measurement is part of the story and um, actually just the concepts that underline what we measure as well. So that's, that's my whole kind of core area of research. So for example, trying to think more about um, using data and how could better use of data by companies improve their productivity and therefore national productivity. And how do we think about valuing data or even counting how much data there is? What's the volume measure that we should be using for data? Yeah, and one of the one of the areas that's obviously been massively affected by the rise of things, big data, and um, just the high velocity of the modern economy is is finance. I was very struck by a quote from I think it's John Cartledge, who's at the University of Bristol. He says, in and you quote him in the book saying. We live, we live in a world dominated by a global financial market of which we have virtually no sound theoretical understanding. I mean, do you think that that understanding is getting any better or is it actually becoming more difficult the more that new, new technology is involved? You know, think about things like um, cryptocurrencies, the, you know, the shadow economy, things like this. Is it, is it getting actually more difficult for economists to get a handle on, on the functions of the global economy? I, I think it's got much worse since since the time of that quote. And um, if you think about the invention of futures and options, this was a financial product, an intangible service um, that brought great practical benefits to farmers by allowing them to hedge uncertainty about their crops and their incomes. And that evolved from the um, Commodities Trading Board's 
starting in Chicago and elsewhere, to the sort of uh, mad world of financial products, the CDOs and CDSs and so on that prompted the financial crisis. And already by that time, it wasn't at all clear that financial services were adding value on net to the economy because of that candy floss world of, of trading and zero sum products. And now it, it seems to be getting even worse. Uh, crypto and um, NFTs are a sort of extra layer of intangibility and a lack of clarity about what's the um, social welfare benefit of, of these products. Are they positive sum at all or are they subtracting value from society? I don't think that's at all clear. I'm sure that will drive a lot of the people who believe in the power of crypto absolutely crazy, but I think it's just, it's just absolutely not known what, what these can potentially do and what they are doing at present. At present, it looks to me like they're scamming a lot of people and are, um, at best zero sum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, I mean, how, on a, in, a, in a general sense, how well do you think the economics profession um, understands the way that the digital economy is different to, the, say, the 20th century economy? You list a, a set of characteristics for each, sort of linear and non-linear and returns to scale. And are we, are we getting up to speed with that change or is it still a case of sort of dragging much of the profession into the 21st century? It is happening. And when I talk about my book to economists, the response I often get is, you say these things, but there was a fantastic paper published in Econometrica last month that tackled exactly this. So there's definitely change and interest. There's surprisingly less interest in the digital economy than I would have anticipated. And I think that's partly because we just lack the basic statistics to, to, to you, uh, deploy our usual tools. Um, so you can't do econometrics because you can't get data on how much data is going in and out of data centers, or, or you can't get the data out of the big tech companies. Um, so, but, but it, is, it is changing, there is interest. My point is really about what's your starting point for thinking about all of this 
And if you are starting thinking in the way that you were taught 10 or, or 20 years ago, you're starting in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to talk about is you, I mean, we, we talk about the kind of monetary impact of different digital technology. Do you think that economists and other social scientists have got a handle or are starting to get a handle on what you might call the broader welfare impacts of digital tech? I'm talking about things like just the amount of time we spend on computers, whether or not it's actually making us happier. That is a slightly nebulous um, concept. But do you think that's something that is in the economist's domain? Not really. There, there are some... Um quite a few highly theoretical papers trying to um, set up formal models that will enable the analysis of welfare effects um, but I don't think there's been much substantive progress and it's interesting you raise that because one of the approaches I'm thinking of at the moment with a colleague is rather than thinking about um, income adjusted for prices as our measure of um, economic welfare should we be thinking about the time people spend in different activities and what well-being they get out of that time? And that could be um, spending time online, and that's now a day a week. It's more than 24 hours in a week in the UK. Um, and that could be work or leisure. Um, it could be household production. So it doesn't matter if it's in the marketed sector of the economy or um, household act, uh, activities that you've got to do or leisure time. Can we think about how much well-being you get from how you spend your time? Because we've all got 24 hours a day and that all has to get allocated. So can we think about that as a welfare metric and what data would we need to do that? And similarly, thinking about productivity in terms of time um, is very different from the standard approach in economics, but there are no products for a lot of the economy. What is the productivity of a management consultant? You're not going to measure the volume of output by the number of pages in the PowerPoint. So um, thinking about time, either speeding up the delivery of routine services or uh, the quality of time spent in non-routine services is an approach that um, we're starting to think about. Okay. And um, one of the things I'm interested in as well is in, in the UK especially, I wonder what you think about, we talk a lot about national indices, um, things like the minimum wage or GDP or, you know, inflation. But, but it strikes me that we are a particularly regionalised sort of economy. I, do you think we do enough, either as both us as journalists um, and you guys in the, in the academy, if you like, um, to differentiate between the economic experience of people in different parts of the country, be it in towns or, or rural areas, um, which is something that we're starting to talk about an awful lot because of this government so-called levelling up agenda. Yes, and, and they've got the levelling up agenda because it's become apparent that this is a um, politically important divergence in the experience of people around the country. Uh, and um, so, you know, I agree with uh, what's behind your question. I don't think we have paid enough attention. There, there have long been economists doing fantastic work on inequality and poverty. But until Thomas Piketty's book in 2014, it wasn't kind of mainstream, it was a special field. And that, that I think, started to turn mainstream attention onto issues of inequality in a big way. And the other thing that struck me was that before the Brexit referendum, there were not regular, regular and good statistics on 
um, subnational economic fortunes around the UK. And so, you know, it hadn't been on the political radar, so it wasn't a priority to do the statistics, but that meant that what was happening in different kinds of towns, seaside towns, small market towns, um, former industrial areas, just wasn't visible because it wasn't in the statistics. And they're the lens through which we see what's happening in the economy. So I think it's going to be really important both to have the statistics at that subnational level, whatever scale is important, but also um, globally as well and understanding better um, what's happening in supply chains globally. We've just discovered recently, we don't have very good data on that. We don't know what the bottlenecks are, what the vulnerabilities are in these global supply chains and that a certain kind of big plastic bag is going to turn out to be crucial for um, vaccine delivery around the world and it's only made in one place. So there's a lot that we need to know. And if you know, if we've got this um, mantra that data is really important, um, companies are starting to use it a lot, then actually public good data statistics that anybody can use are going to be really important as well. So I would hope to see a lot more attention and resource put into that. Mm -hmm. Well, Diane, we're come, coming to the end um, now, but I just want to know as a final question, with all the work you've done in the last 25 years, especially on the digital realm and how things have evolved, are you optimistic about the way things are heading? Um, uh, or do you think that there's a potential for these things to kind of spin out of our control, perhaps? I'm broadly optimistic, I think. Um, you know, the potential for the technologies to achieve the kind of step change in human well-being that we saw with earlier waves of technologies is certainly there. If you think about something like the potential for zero carbon energy systems or the potential for personalised medicines that we're starting to discover. It's all about what are the institutions that can deliver those benefits broadly to the population. And we haven't got those. And actually, we've got a politics that um, is not doing anything to undo the trends towards increasing inequality that we've seen for the past 20 years. So I think the big debate is therefore one about politics and institutions. Um, but in terms of the technology and, and the economic benefits they could deliver, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. Excellent. Well, that's a, a nice positive note on, on which to end. Um, Diane, thank you so much. And to our listeners, Diane's book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, is available in all good bookshops or indeed online. Um, so please do go out and buy it. It's genuinely fascinating and has loads of uh, great recommendations about how economics can improve. So, Diane, thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you.